Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 8, sponsored by Omeris Corporation and Insight. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow and stem cell transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Season 8 of our show focuses on clinical trials. We're covering how to find them, what to expect, and how survivors have benefited from them. We also talk to healthcare professionals about how these oncology clinical trials are conducted and monitored safely. Our goal is to answer as many of your questions as possible. Here's your host, Executive Director of the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, Peggy Burkhart. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have Stacy Brown of Northside Hospital Cancer Institute with us. Stacy is a clinical research and data manager for the cellular therapy and leukemia programs. Stacy is an authority on clinical trials, and we are going to ask her today to help educate us better on everything she knows. Well, hello, Stacy. Well, hi. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for being with us. And I'm just going to jump right in. Can you share with us how it works at a center like yours in regards to navigating the clinical trials available to patients? Sure, I'd be happy to. So one of the things I think is really important to keep in mind is that centers are very different in how they have patients and put patients on their clinical trials. Our center is very unique in that all patients come in from a referring source. And our physicians are very engaged in our research. So when we have a patient come in, they'll say to be on the lookout for clinical trials for them. Our research staff jumps right in and then they look at what the patient disease characteristics are. They look at the patient's history and they'll say, we have this particular study that might be a really good option for the patient. Um, not all centers are going to do that. Some centers are going to handle all of their stuff internally. They'll come from their own patient population. But in our case, we do have them come in from the outside. And then once our research staff gets involved, really, it's a matter of talking to the patient and going through the consent form with the patient and explaining exactly what happens on a clinical trial. We definitely want to involve the patient's family members as well, because enrollment in a clinical trial, it does require you know, commitment to the, the treatment. And we want to make sure the patients and their families know exactly what they're getting into. Well, that certainly makes sense. Wow. So let's talk about the importance of understanding these clinical trials, which I think you just touched on, but also how important it is for patients to advocate for themselves and be real honest with, with their questions, their concerns, the nitty gritty of it all so that there's no time wasted and they can get the treatment that they need. Absolutely. So I will say that um, definitely patients need to be their own advocate. They are their best advocate. And if they are not comfortable doing that, they really need to have a family member or a close friend who's willing to really get in and be involved in their care. Like you said, you know, these consent forms that we have for patients um, for these clinical trials can be anywhere from, you know, 10 pages to 50 pages. And it's a lot of information. And we want the patient and their family members to know exactly what they're doing and what they're getting into. Our research staff and all research staff at any institution should go through the consent form with the patient and their family, you know, on a page by page and say, this is exactly what you're going to be doing. And this is what your screening period looks like. And this is what your treatment period looks like. And this is what your follow-up period looks like. So we really do want to make sure that they are very much aware of what's going on. Most times, there are few times that it doesn't work this way, but most times, Patients will be able to take their consent home and review it, and we encourage that. We want them to talk to their family. We want them to talk to their friends. We want them to understand, again, exactly what it is. 
And if they're not comfortable with what the treatment plan is, they need to come back to their physician and say, you know, this isn't what I think I want to do. What other options do I have? Because it is really important that they know what they're getting into um, and, you know, what the risks are in participating, not just the risks as a clinical risk, but just the risks overall. So we do want patients to make sure that they have family and close friends or, or you know, a trusted person that they can be with them during this time, certainly during the time of enrollment and then throughout the trial. That sounds like a really great plan. And I also want you to touch on, Stacy, how at any time, and I've learned so much about this lately, at any time they can opt out. Is that correct? Absolutely. Clinical research is voluntary. And that is one of the things that the research staff will go over, the physicians will go over. It is absolutely a voluntary thing to do. There are potential other options. Um, and sometimes those options mean not getting care, but it is another option. So at any point that the patient is not comfortable moving forward or doesn't like what's happening on trial or it just becomes too much travel or, you know, or just too many visits or anything like that, they have the option to say, I don't want to participate in this anymore. What's really important, though, when they do that is that they make sure they communicate that to their physician and their clinical team, because if they are in the middle of a particular maybe chemotherapy, that they know what happens if they stop that chemotherapy like right then, because it may not just be as simple as stopping it. Um, they just need to know what will happen if they stop it. And the physicians in the clinical care team will be able to tell them what's going to happen if they choose to withdraw. Um, most clinical trials, if you do choose to withdraw, will ask that the patient come back for a safety follow-up visit. Usually that what they call an end of treatment visit. They'll do that, you know, pretty close to when the patient withdraws consent. But then they'll ask them to come back maybe 30 or 60 days afterwards to do additional safety labs just to make sure that the patient is okay after having received that particular treatment. Wow, it sounds like it's very thorough and the communication is key in this instance. Absolutely. And it just is important for the physician and the clinical team to tell the patient what they think is the best course, but also for the patient and their family members to tell the physician and the clinical team how they feel about moving forward on a particular study. Very good. So let's talk about empowering patients and their families when it comes to clinical trials. How does that work at your center? Once we've talked to a patient, we will send the patient home um, with the consent form, tell them to read it over. Um, we are there available for questions. If there are research staff can't answer the questions because they're very, maybe very specific to the patient's care or very specific to the patient's course, we will always make sure that they have availability to talk to the physician or their clinical team to do that. Really, there's a lot out there on the internet that people can go search. My recommendation is to go onto clinicaltrials.gov. That just gives you a list of all of the clinical trials that are out there and it can sort by the hospital, it can sort by physician, it can sort by disease. So you have the availability to do that to make sure that they know exactly what they're getting into. Again, just really boils down to education and advocacy for the patient on their own behalf. Excellent. Thank you for that. Let's talk a little bit more about when someone's going through a clinical trial, let's face it, there's more eyes on them. Maybe there's some more interaction. Can you elaborate on that, Stacey? Sure. So I think sometimes people will hear that they get uh, more care or better care or more follow-up or anything like that if they enroll on a particular clinical trial. And I don't think that's necessarily true so much as there are just more people involved. So while your normal standard of care patient will have their clinical team paying attention to what they're doing, 
A research patient will also have that same clinical team paying attention, but they will then have the research staff. So a research staff will check in on them on a particular study day and ask how they're doing. And it may be something where they forgot to tell their physician or they forgot to tell their nurse practitioner that, you know, they had this particular side effect. They have an opportunity with the research team who comes in to see them to say, hey, I forgot to mention this. Can you mention this to my physician? So definitely, I think there are more people involved because the research adds an entire layer of, I guess, eyes, really, for lack of better. There's just a whole nother layer of people. That makes sense. And I would think that would be comforting to people in being so altruistic. And let's face it, someone that's in a clinical trial is helping future patients. There are drugs that are going to be developed because of clinical trials. It must be so rewarding to see a lot of the outcomes at your center. Can you share with us, anonymously, of course, just what it's like to see these clinical trials go through the the phases and the process and the people that come out of it? Maybe a life is saved. Maybe a, a new drug is developed as a standard of care. This has been just so exciting to learn more about this. Yes, actually it is. And it is very rewarding to see these patients when they come through because some are very much um, whatever the doctor thinks, whatever I can do to help somebody else so that they don't have to go what I'm going through. Um, and, you know, there are, and we say that in all of our consent forms, whatever happens in this study, whether or not the drug is approved or whether or not the patient, you know, has a remission for a short period or a long period, they are definitely helping the information that's collected on the drug and the side effects are definitely helping, you know, future patients. And that's really great to see. We have been on the, you know, the end where we have seen drugs that get approved and it's really great to see, the, know that we have contributed those and our patients, our specific patients have contributed to that as well. That's exciting. One of the podcasters that will be in this series, it was just so moving uh, for her, uh, for JC, you know, it was about kicking the can down the road further, getting to the next treatment. And, you know, after many relapses, what was needed was more time. And that's exactly what she got by participating in, I believe, one clinical trial, maybe two. And it was just wonderful to see. And, you know, she's a mom. She's got children that she's getting to watch grow up now. And she truly believes a clinical trial saved her life. Absolutely. And, you know, we do have instances where patients, you know, they have those milestones in their life. They want to see their child graduate from college. They want to see their daughter get married. And this potentially offers an opportunity for that where they might not otherwise have gotten that, that they've exhausted all of what standard of care is. And, you know, and we do focus a lot on quality of life and we know the patients do want to get to see those milestones. And it's really great to be able to see when that happens. It's very rewarding for all of our staff to be able to say, hey, that patient was able to see his daughter get married and and walk down the aisle with her. You know, even if it was only short lived, he was able to participate in the clinical trial and was able to do that. Oh, it's so true, Stacey. I have a question for you. How does your center know which trials to consider an initiation or, a, you know, to accept? Sure. So I think that's actually a really great question. We are presented with clinical trials from lots of different avenues. Um, the majority of what we get are from pharmaceutical companies, and it's really our job to take a look at that protocol before we even say yes to the company that we'd like to participate to say, what is the inclusion criteria of this particular study? What is the exclusion criteria of this particular study? And do we see these patients? So there are going to be a fair number of studies that we'll get that we just know we don't have the patient population. 
in our center, we do not treat newly diagnosed patients with multiple myeloma or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So if I get a study that comes to me that's for newly diagnosed, we know we can't do that because we don't see the patients. However, if we've got a study that comes to us for a relapsed or refractory disease that we see, then we can look at it and say, okay, do we have enough patients? The company wants each site to put on so many patients. Can we do that in the amount of time that they ask? So it really is on each study site to say, do we see these patients, number one? And two, can we logistically do this study within our practice? And I think that's how then we get started. If the answers to those questions are, yes, we see this patients. Yes, we think it's a valuable study design. Yes, we think that we could put the number of patients on that they want. And yes, we think it's going to bring value to the patient. Then we'll go back to the company and say, okay, we'd like to participate. And then we start down what we call study startup. Wow. I did not know that. This is great. In your role, you get to decide a lot of these things, I would imagine. So I wouldn't say that I necessarily get to decide it myself, but um, I do make sure that these studies get reviewed, that they get in front of the physicians. The physicians all discuss them. Um, We don't have one person in our group that will pick and say, yes, we want to do this. It is a consensus that we will be able to, all of the physicians will be able to enroll and are comfortable enrolling on a study, whatever study it is. So then it's a general discussion. My job as the research manager is to say, okay, we have 10 of these studies. Does this really make sense? Or this study is going to require a lot of in-person patient visits and a lot of resources. Can we do it? So I don't necessarily get to say, yes, let's do it or no, let's not do it. But I am part of the whole process. That is really neat. So there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Absolutely. Which takes the pressure off of one person. And there's a, a lot of thought that goes into this. Definitely. Thank you so much for explaining that further. This is great. Is there anything else you want to touch on as we kind of get ready to wrap things up here? You know, I will tell you that um, I've been doing clinical research for about 22 years, and it is amazing to me the number of people who really are invested in a one person's care throughout the clinical trial process. Um, we know that studies aren't always going to work. Patients know that studies aren't always going to work, but there are those patients that really are, it's a rewarding experience to say, hey, I was able to participate in this. That drug went to the market. I was able to be part of that process. It is a rewarding job for me. And actually, I don't even know that I would describe it as a job. It is just a rewarding, um, it's just rewarding, period. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it's a calling, Stacey. I think it is. I really do think it is. I think the people that get involved in research really want to be part of the solution Um, When we know there's a problem, but at least we can be a little part of the solution. Even if we're not in the one creating the drug in the lab, we are playing a part in that. Oh, that's wonderful. One more question for you. CAR-T is just so big right now and so exciting. Are you guys seeing a lot of new clinicals popping up that involve CAR-T cellular therapy? Yes, we actually have a very large clinical trial portfolio at our institution we are seeing a lot more. And a few years ago, you know, we had one and then another one would come about. And it's just one of those treatment modalities that I think has really exploded right now. And there are lots of different types of um, cellular therapies, CAR-T being one of them, but there are other things out there. So yes, definitely we're seeing that um, a lot of those trials. It's all very patient-specific and all very disease-specific. So we got very patient specific and very disease specific and very targeted therapy. 
So yes, definitely we, we're seeing a lot of those. Yes, we are hearing from patients and constituents all the time just how excited they are about the CAR-T yes. treatments that are available. And it's just wonderful to think of the lives that are going to be saved. And, and you know, the one gal I was talking about, JC, she would have a bone marrow transplant, then a CAR-T treatment, and then another bone marrow transplant. So, you know, even though the CAR-T was in the middle and if she relapsed, it got her to the next bone marrow transplant where there was an available donor. Absolutely. So talk about exciting strides in science here. Yes. <laughs> Stacey, this is terrific. Thank you so much for educating us better and sharing your wealth of knowledge on this subject. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to participate in this. It's a great field. And I think there's so much to offer. And I think the patients just need to look and again, educate themselves and, and find the right clinical trial that's out there for them. Well, thank you, Stacy. Thank you. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from the information in our show, please share this episode with them via text, email, or social media. Don't miss an episode of our show. Follow the Marrow Masters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. To connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes. The Marrow Masters Podcast is produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts.